Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Key Ingredient Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Naples plastic surgeon, Dr. Kent Hasten. Dr. Hasten, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you on. We've never had a plastic surgeon on the Key Ingredient, and uh, you're very well known in town here in Naples and the surrounding areas. So this is something I've been looking forward to for quite some time, and it's a great way for our viewers and listeners to get to know you better. If you don't mind, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well... Um I came down to Naples back in like 2002, so almost 20 years now. Uh, I grew up in uh, Carmel, Indiana, a suburb outside of Indianapolis. And my parents had retired down here uh, when I started uh, residency. And uh, I started kind of looking around Naples. And with my wife, we got married in my senior year of residency. And we looked at Chicago, but really liked the idea of to start a practice down here in uh, Naples. So we did that, just kind of hung a shingle and kind of ground it out for the last 20 years. And now, you know, we're here. It's a little different than Chicago, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> just definitely. a little bit, especially as a plastic surgeon. I mean, I'm sure Chicago is a great area to be in, but certainly down here, I would imagine with the growth that we're seeing in the area, it's, it's, it's probably a phenomenal place for you. So let, let's go back a little bit because part of the key ingredient podcast, part of premise really is to get to know uh, the people we interview and get to know kind of what that key ingredient was and that pivotal moment in your life that kind of attributed to getting where you are today. So let's go back maybe to your earlier days, grammar school, high school. What kind of kid were you in, in, in grammar school and high school? Um, I was a good student, but I was uh, the youngest of uh, two older sisters. And both of them were like phenomenal students. One uh, was valedictorian of her class, went to Yale for uh, undergraduate. Wow. So she um, kind of led the way. I definitely was a good student, but just wasn't kind of, you know, getting that 4.0 back in back in the 80s like that. Sure. You must have been pretty good, though, to become a, a physician. But uh, did you always know you wanted to be a physician or what age did that kind of? Well, happen? it was funny. Uh, I think at age six, my uh, mom gave me a, a stethoscope for uh, like, I don't know, it was just some gift. And she would always thought my father should have been a uh, uh physician. So he, he worked for Eli Lilly as a industrial engineer, but she was kind of uh, just always wanted a physician in the family. So I like that um, kind of gave me a little uh, idea to kind of go that way and then just did really well in sciences and math. And so I kept kind of chugging along with that in, in undergraduate. Interesting. So was there ever a period of time, you know, throughout school that you thought maybe you go another route? Were there other things that interest you? Were you into sports or... Yeah, I was into sports, but not not anything I could do professionally. Sure, so, sure. so, um, but no, it was um, just really it, it, at IU, which I went to un, in undergraduate at Indiana University. Um, I got into doing some teaching there as kind of a um, student um, uh, teacher assistant and stuff. So it was neat to do bio. I was in biology; it was my main major. Okay. And then in my uh, junior year, I was taking Italian. I'm half Italian. My mom's uh, a first-generation Italian. And I was taking Italian there, and the teacher was actually from the uh, from Bologna, Italy. And Indiana had a, um, a consortium kind of a year-abroad program over in the University of Bologna. And she's sure. like, oh, you should you should really try to go to this. And... This is when I was a junior going into my senior year of college. 
And I was like, "Ah, I'm going to be going into med school. You know, maybe I could use a year just to kind of broaden myself before that. And so came home, told my parents about it. And they were like, oh, you know, no, no, we're, you know, you're on track to go to med school. But it ended up, I ended up doing it, doing an extra year. Um, I came back and did my senior year, but I did that year in Italy and it was just amazing to, you know, and and then I even got a a second degree in Italian. So I had a bachelor's of art in Italian as well as a bachelor of science in, in, um, biology. So. so you speak Italian, is it fair to say that? or <laughs> <laughs> It was fair, it was fair. Not anymore, because okay. that was uh, literally like 30 years ago. So You don't practice I it have, too much. Yeah, haven't had a lot of chance to practice it. So sure. I try, you know, every once in a while, we get, I've been back a couple times to Italy, but just not as much as I'd really like to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I understand. So, okay, yeah. so you graduated, so you graduated uh, in the University. Sure. Um, at that point, while you were there, you were taking, obviously, all the classes you needed for for uh, medical school, and you were a biology major. So you took organic chemistry and all those really tough classes that they make you take. Yes. And uh, so when you started applying to medical schools, what, what was you thinking? Was there, a certain, was there a certain type of practice you thought you might want to get into? Was it plastic surgery at that time? It really wasn't. When I um, was first just going into m- uh, medical school, I really uh, had no, um, uh, like, kind of, you know, mentors that were physicians. I'm nobody in my family was a physician. And, you know, what I'd seen growing up was basically just pediatricians, things like that. So I didn't really know what part of medicine I wanted to go into. I had heard of, you know, like orthopedic surgery because it was kind of cool with all the sports and everything. Sure. So what was interesting though is right before starting med school, my mom was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer. And um, so she was like almost devastated having to have a mastectomy. She felt like, you know, she couldn't go on. And then she met with a plastic surgeon in Indianapolis at the time. And he, you know, said, oh, you know, we can, we can reconstruct it right away. You know, you'll, you'll be whole again and everything. And just that kind of motivation to her really made her get through that and she's you know still here today um, which is great and so that kind of opened my eyes to the possibilities of plastic surgery yeah and then when I went to Cornell uh, I kind of immediately kind of went into the plastic surgery department met some of the people they were all great and uh, got in to do research Uh, in med school you still have summers between like your first and your second year and so I did like a three-month NIH kind of um, granted um, scholarship of research with the plastic surgery department there. And then ever since then, it was just kind of plastic surgery. Sure. Wow. That's, that's terrific. That's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. So, okay. So once you graduated Cornell medical school, so then you ended up in Chicago, is that? I did. Yeah. So uh, different ways of getting to be a plastic surgeon. Initially, it was usually to do like five years of general surgery. And then you do kind of like plastic surgery, two years of plastic surgery. They started to realize it was kind of a waste um, to do all of that training. You're doing, you know, uh, so much just general surgery and very little of the plastic surgery. And then that's what you're actually going to be specializing in. So it started moving away from that to more of uh, an integrated program where you didn't have to get fully board certified in general surgery because it didn't make sense to to go through all that. And so there was a lot of programs that were either three years of general surgery and 
three years of plastic surgery or um, different things like that. So I went into one of the early integrated programs at Northwestern, which was three years of general surgery. But even in those three years, you're still kind of part of the plastic surgery and you're getting um, you're getting rotations that are more important to plastic surgery than they would be to just the general surgeon. Okay. So yeah. once you finished that up in Chicago, did you leave right away to come down here or was there a span of time that you stayed there? Um, no, I did leave. I went down to Miami actually and did okay. a, a cosmetic surgery fellowship down there. And so that was, uh, it was really nice. It was good to see kind of like how a, a real private practice works. So did you work it within a private practice? So someone else's practice you were working? working yeah, at? just still okay. as a fellow though. So, okay. um, and it just kind of gave you an idea of like, what is the real business, I guess, side of, of plastic surgery and also a practice that's really concentrated, you know, almost exclusively in cosmetic surgery. I was going to ask you about the business part, and we could get to that a little bit as well, but um, is that something they teach you in medical school? I mean, you know, I always find that fascinating as someone who's in business, you know, you come out, here you are, obviously a good student, you get through all these uh, all these boards and, and, and exams and everything you need to do and just a lot of schooling in general, and then you come out and all of a sudden you're a business owner. So we'll get to that in a moment, so we'll hold on to that. So how long did you do that fellowship? Uh, that was just a three-month fellowship, Okay, uh, kind of get your feet wet with that, and during that time, I was basically starting to um, ramp up the practice here, like getting a, a place to practice, getting insurance, all the different things, a Florida license, everything you need. Sure. So when you started the practice here, it was the same building you're in now, or it, oh, started, no. it was different yeah. location, yes, right? different okay. location. So you started down here. How, how did you hire people? Did you hire one person? Did you have multiple? Did... I initially just hired one person, okay. and she was kind of like... Uh, doing both the front desk and the back end. And um, the problem was, you know, she was kind of billed as being able to do all of that, but the books were actually, you know, kind of a mess by the time I kind of realized it, which was about three months into the practice. Okay. And this was 2002? Is yes, that correct? 2002. Okay. So 2002. So you, you hired a person, and how soon after that did you start hiring more staff? Because right now, how many do you have total? Uh, we have about 15 full-time and another uh, like three or four that are more part-time for our surgery center. Okay. Okay. Excellent. So did you start hiring a lot after that or was it kind of a slow process? It's a slow process. Okay. Yeah. Just, okay. um, but I wanted to get um, a few more people that were more dedicated to different jobs rather than one person trying to do it all because, you know, in general, most people can't do everything well. It's better to you know, have people specialize in different areas. That makes sense. It leverage, right? Yes. I mean, it's, it's just a smart concept in general. So with plastic surgery, there are obviously lots of different avenues to take. Um, obviously, it is also evolved as far as the type of procedures you're doing, evasive and non-evasive, right? So what is, is there anything that you'd say is your specialty? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm still a surgeon mostly, you know, so I'm still more into the surgical aspects of it, but we do have a full like med spa where we offer a lot of the newer uh, non-surgical procedures are minimally invasive. But uh, surgically, we do a lot of like mommy makeovers, which would be both dealing with the breasts and the abdomen. And is that a tummy tuck? Is that could be a tummy it? tuck. Okay. It could be breast lift, breast augmentation, uh, breast lift with augmentation. But kind of doing all of that typically in women after their children because uh, there could be a lot of changes. But it's also... 
we do a lot of um, uh, patients that maybe are in their 50s and even 60s that need, you know, that have concerns in both those areas, and we do all of that. Wow. Is the mommy makeover, is that is that becoming more and more popular? Are you seeing growth in that area? Yeah, definitely. There's a lot in that area, and it's nice to kind of get a get all of that done at one time. It's a long surgery, but then they tend to stay overnight with us. We have a, a center where they can uh, cover with the uh, with a nurse staying with them overnight. So it's a little safer to kind of monitor them that way. How long is that surgery usually on average? Uh, it's uh, anywhere from seven to eight hours. Okay, that's a long day for you standing doing surgery, right? Yes. So what is the uh, recovery after that? How long does it take before the patient starts to feel like where they could do normal things again? Um, I would put it at about uh, a week to 10 days. Okay. You're not doing anything strenuous, but you're probably up to standing upright because initially after like a tummy tuck, you tend to be a little hunched over. Well, you're tight, right? Tight, is that the re- yes. I would imagine yeah. so, yeah. And so, um, but by about a week, most people have kind of gotten more upright and start feeling more like themselves. Um, but it's around three weeks, I would say, is when you really feel like you're back to normal. You can start doing more strenuous activity around three weeks. Okay, so let's go back 20 years ago when you started practice here. Roughly, what percentage of your practice would you say was more surgical versus non-surgical? Oh, it was... Um, Outside of Botox, there was almost actually in 2002 is when Restylane first got um, FDA approved. So before that, there was only collagen, and collagen did not last at all. It was like uh, maybe three months, uh, if that, sometimes. So collagen was not a very popular uh, uh, facial injection. Restylane kind of rewrote the, uh, the whole scenario, and that was the first FDA-approved one in America. So that, combined with Botox, that was really the main, like, non-surgical. So otherwise, it was 100% surgical. That's what I would imagine. Yeah. Then it's evolved over time. So what's the difference between Botox and Restylane, then? Okay, so Botox is more of what they call a neuromodulator, and that weakens muscles so they don't create a wrinkle. And so that's more of a preventative uh procedure so it's good on what's called called a dynamic wrinkle which is a wrinkle that's not really there at rest and then it forms and so if you can stop a dynamic wrinkle it will never become a static wrinkle and that's a wrinkle that's there all the time okay so when you get to wrinkles that are there all the time you may need a filler or some kind of resurfacing to the uh to the skin so uh, Botox and basically sunscreen are really the only like uh, preventative things that we can really do. Outside of that, everything else is more corrective. So using fillers um, for different reasons. So that it, it, the amount of fillers have really exploded over the last 20 years. I'm sure they Starting have. just with Restylane and then from that, there's different ones that are formulated for different reasons. So there's finer ones that are more for... Uh, very superficial on the skin for very fine lines and wrinkles. And then there's some thicker ones that are meant to be injected very deeply, like against the cheekbones, to kind of give volume back. And so um, they can all be used kind of um, uh, in one patient, depending on the different needs that they have. Interesting. So I now I would imagine your practice is a little bit different. So it's changed. So there's probably a lot more um, non-surgical, right? I mean, do you, any idea? I mean, is it kind of half and half or is it still more towards the surgical part still? 
Well, I did bring in a uh, physician extender who's a, a physician assistant. And um, by doing that, I was able to kind of give up a bit of my injection practice sure. and non-surgical practice and then still stay with the surgeries. So I feel like, you know, my time's probably better spent doing surgery. That's what I trained for for so long. So we have a very busy medical spa, and I still do the injections, and I still am a uh, speaker and trainer for Allergan, who's the maker for um, Botox and Juvederm and those fillers. But, um, yeah, with my, I think our overall practice is probably 50-50. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So for women, what is the most popular procedure that you're seeing now? I guess surgical and non-surgical. Okay, yeah. So non-surgical would still be Botox yeah, by far. sure. And then that's followed closely by uh, fillers, you know, like um, um, Juvederm. So there's a whole line in that and Juvederm fillers and the Restylane fillers. Is there anywhere specifically where the fillers are more popular on the face? Um, well, in the lips, obviously, okay. is a yeah. very popular sure. area. The cheeks um, have really become much more popular because when Restylane as well as Juvederm were first FDA approved, they were really only approved for the nasolabial fold. And that is a fold or a crease that's kind of between your nose down to the corner of your mouth. And that fold is, you know, it's unsightly, but it's not actually a, a place that you're losing volume. It's actually you're losing volume behind that on your cheeks, and then the excess skin kind of falls down and creates a bigger fold at that area. So filling that in kind of masks it, but it's not actually addressing the problem, and it's not really where we naturally have volume. Sure. So sometimes people are getting kind of overdone there, and you could almost look a bit simian or like an ape. Yeah. And yeah. so um, it's nice that now there's these thicker ones that are actually used further out. And what's been shown, too, is by doing those fillers out on the cheeks, it makes big improvements to the nasolabial fold, you don't need to put as much or, if at all, any filler in that area. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so. And surgical, is it more the mommy makeover and breast augmentation type of? Um, yeah, you know, but there's um, there's a mix in the breast. There's plenty of people um, that I see that actually end up having their breast implants taken out just because either, you know, they've aged some and maybe they've gained some weight and sometimes the uh, it's just not where they are in that, that stage of life. So a lot of times we could even be taking them out, doing a lift and kind of just making everything, you know, look a little more like age appropriate in, in some ways. More natural, I would imagine. Yes, so you're yeah. actually taking them out, you're not putting anything back in and you're just doing more of a lift? Yes. Okay. A lot of times okay. we do that. Um, but, you know, and we still do plenty of breast augmentation. So it's both in and out, I guess. It just depends on the person. Okay. Um, and then, obviously, facial rejuvenation is pretty big down here in, in Naples, Florida. Sure, so, sure. Um, we do a lot of uh, both, you know, facelifts as well as necks and eyes and brows. So okay. there's all of that as well. Now let's move over to the men. Okay. okay. So most of, most of us, when we think of plastic surgeons or plastic surgery, we think of women, obviously. But I'm, I everything I read tells me that's changing quite a bit. So what are you seeing? I mean... Are you seeing a large percentage of men now coming to your practice versus 20 years ago? And if so, what are they having done? Yeah, I would say that's definitely picked up a lot. I mean, it's still obviously a predominance of women in the practice, but we're probably to like 15%, maybe uh, okay. male at this point. 
And uh, non-surgically, again, it's going to be the same things, the Botox. Um, that really helps. Fillers with, as well for men or not as much? Not as much, yeah. um, but some, you know, and, and it could be used, the filler sometimes used in the static wrinkles because a lot of times men come and they've already kind of developed the deep creases in the forehead or in, in between the brows. And so just doing Botox alone is really not going to get rid of that. So you could do some Botox plus the fillers. Okay. And that helps. Okay. Um, otherwise, you know, with men, there's, uh, definitely necks are very, uh, a big thing as well as eyes. Eyes can be very aging. So neck, is it more underneath? Yeah. Right. So, so what do you, what do you do? Do you inject, you inject something in there or how does that kind of work? Most of the time there's too much skin to really do any kind of injection. So it's mostly doing a neck lift. Got it. But the good thing is it can be done with kind of pretty, uh, well hidden scars and, so people at conversational distance w- wouldn't really have any idea they had something done like that. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So what would you say, being a plastic surgeon all these years, what's the hardest part of being a plastic surgeon? Well, I would say it's just trying to make sure you're on the same page with the patient. So it's managing expectations. Sure, sure. You know, because um, you want to, obvi- I, I always want to give the best result I possibly can to a patient, but sometimes their expectations not really realistic and if you can talk to them educate them as much as possible as to what you feel like you can really accomplish then that uh, leads to much more happy patients so that can be helped through the use of 3d imaging and morphine softwares which have really come a long way uh, since i started practice so that that's one helpful way to kind of give them a bit of an uh, idea of what what it might look like. And so that is, um, you know, just helps kind of make sure that we're both on the same wavelength. Sure, that makes sense. What about your favorite part of being a plastic surgeon? What do you enjoy the most? Uh, Well, I mean, you know, it's just seeing kind of the happy patient afterwards. (laughs) It's great. And, um, you know, just that some people, it really makes a huge change. You know, some people think it's just, very cosmetic and superficial, but it's it really leads to improvements in their like mental state, how they feel about themselves. And confidence, the sure. Right. Yeah, I would imagine yeah. so. Yeah, that's interesting. So from a business point of view, I mentioned before about hiring staff and all that. I mean, uh, again, there was a lot for you to learn probably quickly. I mean, even things like marketing and all that. I mean, anybody who has a business needs to, uh, it's one thing to, to be in a profession, but if no one knows you do it, right, uh, that doesn't help. So how has that evolved for you? I mean, do you kind of have a lot of people on your team doing a lot of those things now for you and it just runs on its own? Pretty much, yeah. Okay. I mean, initially when we came out, uh, the internet was, you know, just just getting popular. I mean, it was yeah, pretty early stages of that. It was still a big yellow page kind of time sure. as well as print ads. And all of that has really gone by the wayside, and now it's mostly just internet, um, as well as doing a lot of um, social media. Okay, which you know that is, I'd say I'm a little on the older side, you know, so it's harder for me to kind of get into the whole social media side of it. But by hiring, you know, pay uh, our younger, younger people who can <laughs> exactly, yes, exactly. So that's that's worked out really well. And we try to keep a really consistent branding. We've actually had the same kind of main marketing, advertising uh, woman with us for like uh, probably 18 of the 20 years so far. Okay. And that way, um, my wife's also very into kind of the look and the the way 
we present ourselves in our practice and I think it shows both in the, the build out that we did. We built out our office about six years ago and it's just got a really nice feel to it and it really kind of portrays what we're trying to do as a brand. Yeah, that's terrific. Now, do you offer a consultation? So anyone listening and watching right now who's thinking, I've always been wanting to maybe have a few improvements made. I mean, how does that, how does that work? How does a consult, first of all, do you have a consultation that you offer? And second of all, what would, what would we expect um, going to your office and, and going through that process? Yeah, so, yes, we do consultations, and um, many people ask if they're free, and they're actually not because, okay. you know, we want to, one, make sure we have people that uh, really want to go through with it. Of course. Not, not just, you know, super big tire kickers just want to find out something. Sure. So a little skin in the game, I think, helps. And then, two, it really cuts down on no-shows, too, because we are setting aside an hour of my time, and, and, and there is – you know, it's an hour-long process, basically. Beforehand, we have you fill out, like, some um, just online paperwork and stuff that can basically all be done through the uh, Internet at this point. And then you come in and meet with, basically, the patient coordinator, and they try to kind of go through the, the uh, health history, see if there's any kind of red flags, anything like that, and then also just get an idea of what the patient's trying to accomplish, what's, what's their aesthetic goals. And then okay. from that, then I would usually come in and kind of discuss that, show possible, you know, before and after photos of patients that we've done that have had a, a similar procedure. If there's morphine involved, then we would, you know, have photos taken of the patient and then possibly do some changes to the photos to give them an idea with that. If they're doing breast augmentation, we get a bunch of measurements and then even have them try on sizer implants to get an idea of the size. Okay. So it's a, it's a good hour-long procedure, and and then at the end of it, we kind of present them with a quote on, you know, what what is going to cost to do kind of the whole thing, and that includes everything, including the follow-up. And so, you know, we have a follow-up uh, for as long as it needs to be. So even with patients with breast implants, we follow them yearly until, you know, until they need to be followed. So with an implant, it's not going to last forever. So I really encourage them to come back yearly and we can keep an eye on the implants to make sure that they're still safe and intact. And we can okay. even do imaging of them using like a high-def ultrasound, which uh, allows us to look at the shell to make sure if it's a silicone implant, you wouldn't necessarily know that it's ruptured. So with this ultrasound, we're able to kind of see through the skin not have to get an MRI, which is very costly. Okay. You said it doesn't last forever. How long does it usually last? Well, that's, uh, you know, the, the internet might tell you 10 years or so, <laughs> right. but it's not really 10 well, years. Well, everything on the internet is accurate. I, I've <laughs> learned that. So <laughs> yes, Dr. Google tells you that. Yes. So, um, no, it could be, it could be out to 20 years or so. I mean, the, the benefit of like a saline implant is it's filled with just saline, which is IV fluid. And when that does rupture, you would know because the the saline just pops. It basically goes into your bloodstream. Sure. And uh, and then you you obviously know because it's deflated. Sure. Now with silicone, it's not going to change. It's um, the volume's not going to go anywhere. So um, it may or may not really matter that it's ruptured because nowadays they're more of a cohesive gel or a gummy bear kind of quality. So they're 
not real liquidy. They're more gel-like. Okay. So it's, it's not as harmful? Because I was going to say, if yeah. you don't know that it's ruptured, I mean, is that harmful? But I guess not because of what they're using. Yeah, it depends. I mean, okay. so, I mean, it's probably not a great idea to have something like that. But it's if you're not having any issues with it, either, you know, the, the capsule, like your body forms a capsule around any foreign body. Um, sometimes the capsule might thicken because the implant's ruptured. And that would be kind of a sign, oh, you know, these have been in for 15 or 20 years and now it's kind of hardened. You know, it would make sense then to just go ahead and have the procedure get that out and either put in a new one or, as I said before, sometimes you just take it out and do a lift and, and you move on from that. Okay. Okay. Appreciate yeah. that. Well, listen, you have an impeccable reputation down here in, uh, in Naples, Florida, and uh, appreciate you spending time with us today, really, to give a glimpse of what it's like to be a plastic surgeon, really all the options that are available to everybody out there. Last question for you, where can our listeners and viewers find your office and how can they get in touch with you? Okay. Well, uh, on the internet, we're just at uh, drhasen.com, which is D-R-H-A-S-E-N.com. And the office is located on Airport Polling Road, um, just across from Gray Oaks. Okay, perfect. Uh, yeah. Well, listen, Dr. Hasten, thank you so much for joining us and continued success. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right.